The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Charger NATO called it Charger. It was the 60s, and the cool boys had long hair. The girls were in psychedelic tie-dye shirts and mini-skirts, and their dads sported trilby hats. Governments were in a post-war technology race. The US and the USSR were fighting to get the first man onto the moon and also be the first to develop a supersonic transport aircraft. Three contenders were striving to dominate the futuristic dream of moving champagne-sipping passengers around at speeds and heights only previously experienced by military pilots in fantastic machines whilst wearing complicated safety equipment. The American contender was the Boeing 2707, a Mach 3, 250-300 seat, swing-wing design. By 1960, a cool million dollars, over 24 million by today's standards, had been spent and the overambitious design pared down to a conventional delta-winged airliner carrying 150 passengers. As the European and Soviet aircraft moved forward, the Boeing proposal fell behind schedule, became mired in political controversy and spiralling costs. With little more than mock-ups to show for over a decade's work, Boeing gave up. The financial burden nearly broke the company and forced them to cut their employee numbers by more than 60,000. The Boeing SST became known as the aeroplane that almost ate Seattle. As a result of the mass layoffs and with so many people moving away from the city in search of work, a billboard was erected near SeaTac Airport in 1971 that read, Will the last person leaving Seattle turn the lights out? The consortium building Concord progressed, not without problems, but with a realistic chance of success, whilst in the Soviet Union, things were far from pretty. It was 1961 that Khrushchev first heard about the Anglo-French supersonic aircraft. He told Andrei Tupolev that they could not let the West get ahead in this technology and gave him the unenviable task of creating a supersonic passenger aircraft in less time. The Soviets realised that they were some two to three years behind in the race, and there was only one way to reduce that kind of lead, to cheat. Now, here is a controversial part of this story. It was the spring of 1963, and the USSR spy network, Directorate T to be precise, was instructed to find out about the airframe and engines of Concorde. Information was recorded on microfilm and placed in towel dispensers, bins, cigar tins and toothpaste tubes in order to smuggle the valuable secrets back to the Soviet Union. In the early 1960s, 
Sergei Pavlov was the chief of the Paris office for Aeroflot, the Soviet airline, and was one of the main sources. His job brought him into contact with all kinds of aviation people across France, and that was a good thing, because he was a spy. It wasn't until 1964 before it was realised that the Soviets had penetrated the Concorde programme. Everything had been examined by the Soviets, even down to tyre scrapings from the runway. At last, however, French military intelligence caught up, and on February 1st, 1965, Pavlov was captured and deported, but not before the French used the unsuspecting spy to confuse the Russians. They fed him false intelligence, including the marvellous rubber compound used for Concorde's tyres. They gave him the formula for a substance something like bubblegum. That wasn't the last of it, however, as he was followed by a spy codenamed Ace. This agent was an aeronautical engineer recruited in 1967 and named Fabu. In the drive to gather Concord intelligence, he was Moscow's most powerful weapon. For 15 years, Sergei Fabu remained undetected, working with a network of communist sympathisers and paid informants. He supplied the Soviets with thousands of technical documents. Ace handed over more than 90,000 pages of detailed technical specifications on new aircraft, including Concorde, the Super VC-10 and the Lockheed L-1011. The agent was just one of more than a dozen spies operating within Europe and passing commercial and technical secrets to the Russians at the height of the Cold War. One thing was for sure, the Charger or more correctly, the Tupolev Tu-144, was strikingly similar to Concorde. However, it's one thing to have a set of plans, it's another to use an existing manufacturing infrastructure to build it. What's more, Tupolev was a very skilled aircraft designer. He was up against a punishing timetable, so where possible, he used existing Soviet technology, as well as innovation, to overcome the problems he was presented with. The prototype was a full-scale demonstrator, but lacked several design features that Concorde used. Unable to exactly replicate the wing shape, the 144 couldn't get the approach speeds low enough. Tupolev needed to have the trailing edge elevons deflected downwards like flaps. This caused a nose-down pitching moment that was countered by attaching two small retractable moustache canards just behind the cockpit, which had fixed double-slotted slats and retractable double-slotted flaps. The canards gave lift to the nose to counter the downward pitch of the lowered elevons. A workmanlike solution, but not nearly as elegant as the beautifully shaped Concorde wing, which at high angle of attack generated a stable ram's horn vortex. This vortex created the low speed lift needed and gave Concorde a considerably lower approach speed. 
By 1968, Tiplov had caught up with the makers of Concorde, but not without some considerable compromises, particularly in the areas of braking, such that the 144 relied on a braking parachute and engine control, and they worked day and night to beat Concorde into the air. Despite the difficulties, on the 31st of December 1968, the TU-144 took off on its maiden flight, two months before its European rival. It continued to progress faster when it first went supersonic on the 5th of June 1969, and the next year it became the first commercial transport to exceed Mach 2. However, Despite the successful completion of these milestones, all was not well with the aircraft, which had now been dubbed Konkordski due to its similarity to its European equivalent. The engine design did not allow for supersonic crews without the use of afterburner, which reduced its range considerably. The aircraft also had extremely long engine intakes as the designers erroneously believed that this would help prevent engine surges, a considerable problem with the early versions. There was doubt concerning its low-speed handling characteristics and it had a very poor serviceability record. Regardless, the second production aircraft was programmed to display alongside Concorde at the 1973 Paris Air Show. The Paris Show was, and remains, one of the most prestigious events for aircraft manufacturers, so it was a matter of enormous pride that the Soviets show their aircraft and display to the world their technical prowess. This aircraft had been considerably modified when compared with the first prototype. It now had engine nacelles split on either side of the fuselage and the retracting canards. There had been fierce competition between the Concorde and the TU-144, and the Soviet pilot, Mikhail Kozlov, had bragged that he would outperform the Concorde. Just wait till you see us fly, he was quoted as saying. Then you'll see something. On the final day of the show, Concorde flew what some described as a less than inspiring demonstration, and it was believed that Kozlov was determined to prove how much better his aircraft was. In front of a crowd numbering a quarter of a million, amongst which were luminaries from all parts of the world of aviation, including Alexei Tupolev himself. On board was a crew of six, which included the deputy chief designer and an engineer major general. Whilst on the runway, Koslov had been informed that his display time had been cut in half, and perhaps this change had some bearing on what happened next. Deafened by the thunderous roar of four reheated NK-144 turbofans, the sleek airliner leapt airborne. Kozlov brought the aircraft round for a pass with the gear down and canards extended, and then with the engines at full power, pitched up into a steep climb. At around 2,000 feet, the TU-144 pitched and rolled rapidly into a steep dive. The airframe broke up in mid-air, the left wing separating first, 
and then the rest of the aircraft disintegrated and crashed into an area of housing, destroying 15 of them. All on board died, plus eight more on the ground, including three children. Sixty received severe injuries. In the aftermath of the crash, theories abounded as to the cause. Since the aircraft was a prototype, the investigation was conducted by the French military. The accident data recorder was apparently destroyed in the crash, so a great deal was left up to supposition. Over the years, a number of possible causes have become popular. Unbeknown to the Soviet crew, a French military Mirage fighter was flying in the vicinity of the display aircraft, apparently trying to photograph the new moustache canards in flight. It's possible that, surprised by its presence, Kozlov manoeuvred to avoid it and overstressed or stalled the Tuplov. However, it may have been that the abrupt manoeuvre was merely an attempt to impress the crowd. Some thought that a camera given to the co-pilot to record the display might have been dropped and subsequently jammed the controls, preventing Kozlov from pulling out of the dive. It has also been revealed that the TU-144 was equipped with experimental flight control equipment that was supposed to be disabled and covered for the flight. However, in the wreckage, this equipment was neither disabled nor covered, leading some to believe that it was being used improperly to improve the manoeuvrability of the aircraft for the benefit of the display. Whatever the reason, the appalling disaster, in full view of the world's press, was a devastating blow to the future of the aircraft, and it marked the beginning of the end for Konkordsky. The S version went into service in December 1975, flying mail and freight between Moscow and Almaty, and a passenger service commenced late in 1977. The early flights showed up the TU-144's appalling serviceability. During 102 flights, lasting 181 hours, the TU-144S suffered more than 226 failures, 80 of them in flight. 80 of the snags were serious enough to cancel or delay the flight. It became common to blame non-existent poor weather for the flight cancellations. Failures included a cabin decompression and an engine exhaust duct overheat, and eventually it became a requirement for Alexei Tupolev and the two Soviet vice ministers of aviation to be personally present at Moscow airport before every departure to review the aircraft's condition and release it for flight. On one particular flight, Captain Alexandra Larin recalled problems with 22 of the 24 major systems on board, Eight systems failed before takeoff, but since there were a large number of foreign journalists on board, it was decided to risk flying rather than face the embarrassment of cancellation. The problems continued to multiply, and en route, the Tupolev Bureau's crisis centre informed them that they would have to land on the right undercarriage leg alone. 
The Soviet leader Brezhnev himself was informed, since there was expected to be significant political fallout. With the accumulation of failures, an alarmingly loud siren went off after takeoff that couldn't be silenced. Finally, out of frustration, a passenger's pillow was stuffed into the horn to soften the blaring noise. In the end, the flight passed off safely when the gear was successfully lowered. Other problems for the passengers came from the very high noise levels in the cabin caused by the engines and air conditioning. It was so loud that passengers could only talk to their immediate neighbour with difficulty, and those two seats apart couldn't communicate at all even when screaming at each other. Only 14 production aircraft were ever built, 9 S models and 5 D models. With the Soviet officials fearful of a major crash, it flew only enough to claim that it was filling a regular schedule. In the end, only 55 passenger flights were performed, carrying an average of 58 passengers per flight. Then a brand new TU-144D suffered an in-flight failure that led to a crash landing, killing two of the crew. And after that, the pride of the Soviet's fleet was only used as a very fast, enormously expensive freighter. In total, 102 flights were performed, but soon major cracks were discovered in the airframes of the prototypes, which led to the end of commercial flights. The last scheduled service was made on the 1st of June 1978, and whilst the Concorde continued to operate safely and consistently for years, its namesake slipped quietly out of sight the world's only other supersonic airliner, was gone. In the end, it was almost certainly the rush design and production of the TU-144 that led to its demise. The aircraft's development was strongly driven by the ideological and politically motivated haste to beat Concorde into the air, as if the race were more important than the overall success of the aircraft. When Concorde carried its first passenger, it was the most tested aircraft ever produced, having flown some 5,000 hours. The total testing time of the 144 was less than 800.